The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I think last week there were seven or eight brave souls who made it. Gail Iverson led the program last week. I was on retreat myself. Uh, Common Ground has four residential retreats a year that uh, the center sponsors that I teach. So we were down in Holy Spirit, a Catholic retreat center, hour and a half south and a little west of the Twin Cities. Really nice to be on retreat in the blizzard. So welcome back. <laughs> Hopefully nobody got stuck on the way over last week. Um, before um, I go on to the topic, uh, chapter six in Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart, I thought I'd make an announcement and also see if there are, are questions about practice. So first, the announcement, um, instead of rushing and doing it at the end, I thought I'd just mention how the center works. And it's really meant to be more than just a functional way for the center to meet its expenses, which is this practice we call dana. And uh, one of the things that I'm sure most of you have recognized in the world, just becoming more sensitive, is we feel how everything is alive with movement. Nothing actually is static. And we can bring this perception into all of our relationships, our relationships with our, our relationship with our partner, our relationships with our children and our family members, with our community, with places like Common Ground, where instead of like having a static notion, oh, I'm part of this group, or I'm the mother of this child, or I'm the partner of this person, we see it as a dynamic, something that's alive. Like any uh, sort of natural system or ecology, there's a symbiotic, beautiful way of being, way of relating. And it's characterized by movement. So the way dana, which is the word for generosity, it's not just about giving, it's also about receiving. It's about being part of the natural cycling. I know, I know that sounds a little bit like a cliche or even new agey, but this is something we can directly experience. And it's, it's more about cultivating that perception. So you can take anything, like your relationship to a good friend or a partner. And you know how it can devolve into a sort of business-like relationship if we're not careful. Well, she was nice to me, so I'll be nice to her. You know, she's been patient with me, I'll accept this about her. But that's a business relationship. It's not, it's not love. You know, it's something else. It's like, uh, you know, who's going to sort of strategic, like what can we get away with? How much do I have to give in order to get what I think I need? And this way of being in the world in any kind of relationship with our community, with common ground, with partners, with kids, is tight and not very satisfying. What I think people, I certainly, it's true for me, what I find satisfying is moving in the direction of giving freely. And 
receiving freely. It's, it can't be just one or the other. You know, we have we have to wake up to both. How good it feels to give freely. So when we show up to our partner and listen to what they have to say or just are there for them, instead of this sort of business relationship where I hope she's realizing how much I'm putting out here, you know, it can be more like noticing it feels good to give when we can give. And it feels good to receive. I mean, imagine if we were inspired today or all day tomorrow to notice moment by moment through the day to see everything in this light. So every moment is seen in the light of giving or receiving or both. Because sometimes it's the same thing. In fact, sometimes really receiving somebody's generosity freely is a real gift to them, too, paradoxically, right? You know how that is. Like For this person, what they may need more than anything else is to be able to offer us something. And to receive it fully, gratefully, is also maybe nice to get with their offering, but it's nice for them to kind of create that opportunity for them to give completely and freely. Get on the bus and just appreciate, you know, the orderliness of this community that has bus service, has a bus that works, that shows up, somebody who can drive it. And just receive that, the technology, you know, that we can actually build buses. We even have hybrid buses now in Minneapolis. Maybe you've seen them. Just to receive all of that can, or it can be the cause for joy, right? We can actually be happy receiving that. You know, and then we can be a good citizen. We can, you know, make space for people who need it more than we do to sit down. Or we can do all kinds of things to give back. Just having loving feelings when we're sitting there realizing, oh my God, everybody in this bus is a human being like me. You know, they want to be happy just like me. May you all be happy. And just to have that wish is a beautiful act of generosity. And it to give that wish away freely also feels really good. And that's how it works here at the center too. We try to arrange things so everything at the center is given freely. And we don't even have suggested donations. And we don't even have a lot of reminders to give, except the monthly announcement that I'm doing now. Because the idea is we don't want want to activate that guilt response. Oh, I took a program at Common Ground. I have to give. Or, you know, how all the different ways organizations can trigger that. I mean, it's amazingly creative. They're amazingly creative. I don't know about you, but I've gotten a lot of letters from Minnesota Public Radio lately. <laughs> I know Andy works there, or works for them. And it's amazing how creative they can be, you know, both uh, strumming sort of wholesome strings and strumming not so wholesome strings in our heart to get a particular response from us. But we try not to do that at the center because the idea is we want the support that comes, whether it's financial support or people volunteering their time or people just being really sincere in their practice, all of these support the community and the center. We'd like it to come from something really beautiful, like free giving. People are giving because it makes them happy to give, not because they feel obliged, not because they feel guilty, because it's a cause for joy in the heart. 
And the same thing, you know, we invite people, whenever you think about Common Ground or the Buddhist teachings or this community or that it, it's like a cause for joy. The, the beautiful building that so many people worked hard to make happen and, and just to appreciate it. Wow, it's really wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to show up. It's wonderful not to be harangued or harassed about contributing. And just to appreciate that cycle of giving and receiving. So if you ever have any questions about it, let me know. We finally had a couple people volunteer lately to give the announcement. So next week, somebody else is going to give the announcement. Judy's going to do it. And somebody is Sunday morning a volunteer. So if you'd like to give the, not as long as I take, <laughs> but if you'd like you know, three to six minutes to give uh, an announcement of Donna, especially if you've been at the center and really have worked with it and come to understand how it's not just your relationship to Kamgum, but in all arenas of your life, that would be great. It would be nice to have different people in the community from time to time give the monthly announcement about generosity, about taking care of the center. So that's that. So we can go on to Chapter 6, but I want to make sure that uh, people have a chance to ask questions about practice, anything pragmatic about the instructions, how to practice, what's coming up that might be difficult, but also any questions about the teachings and the Buddhist tradition that you've been wanting to ask. It's nice to take some time to hear from people. So anything come to mind? Yeah, Liz. Well, when you use the word concentration, is it um, suggesting that we focus on the breath? I mean, is that the extent of it? or? No, you mean in the guided meditation today? Yes, and when you when you introduce, you know, when you begin with the guided meditation, mm -hmm. when you talk about concentration, could you talk a little bit more about Yeah. So the direction that Yeah, concentration is is a important concept of meditation to understand because in our conventional conditioning we have a particular idea of concentration. <laughs> right? And there's wholesome and unwholesome concentration. That would be unwholesome concentration, where like the, the bringing the attention onto an object is driven by greed or aversion, basically. That's what we would call unwholesome concentration. Like a burglar, you know, a good burglar at least, has good, unwholesome concentration. You know, they're focused because of greed and because of fear, fear of getting caught, greed of being successful in the robbery. Their mind is focused on the task at hand. And you can get, you know, there are, you know, a lot of the probably um, famous or infamous leaders, political, military leaders through history probably have had uh, a real skill in unwholesome concentration, organizing, collecting their mind, using greed or aversion to collect the power of the mind to be focused, one-pointed about power or about um, destroying people who might challenge them. And that's not what we're interested here. But the part that's similar is we are interested in investigating different wholesome ways the energy of the mind, the attention in particular, 
can come together, can become unified. So concentration is the unification of the mind. So the opposite of scatteredness or distractedness or the dispersion of mental energy, it's a collecting of the mind, but not relying on greed or aversion to collect the energy of the mind. So we can rely on love to collect the energy of the mind. We can rely on a wholesome interest in truth, like the way it is, not truth philosophically, but just an actual interest in the present moment. And there's also, especially with more practice, there's also something we begin to discern, almost like a magnetic attraction toward unification. Like it seems so easy for our minds to be scattered and dispersed and here and there and all over the place. But that, I think, mostly happens due to habit. And the actual subtle but very real inclination of the mind is to become simple and quiet. And the more we um, touch that place of quiet or stillness or peace, that simplicity of mind, that unification of mind, then it's like the mind re-remembers Oh yeah, that's possible. You know, that's it's possible for this mind, and it and it sort of re-remembers that magnetic attraction. The mind is attracted. It seeks that stillness, that peace. So a lot of what we do in practice uh, is we find ordinary objects like the breath, like sensations of sitting, like hearing. In other traditions, they might use a mantra, or they might use a visualization, or a prayer. You know, we'll use the quality of love in our loving-kindness practice that we'll be doing this Friday night, our first Friday of the month loving-kindness practice group. Everyone's welcome. So we can use those objects because the places that are easiest to learn this natural, wholesome concentration are with pleasant, and neutral objects of awareness or of experience. I mean, pain actually works pretty good if you can go beyond your aversion to the pain, because it's such a distinct happening. The attention naturally will want to go to the pain, but it's going to want to go with aversion, wanting to control it, wanting to get rid of it. But if we can not be confused by that habit to be averse to the pain or want to control the pain, then you can use pain too. Thanks for the question, Liz. Other questions about practice that come to mind? Yeah, Anya. So tonight I had a particularly restless meditation where my mind was just really going all over the place, refusing to focus on the breath, refusing to even kind of observe itself going all over the place. And my legs felt more uncomfortable than they normally do. So at one point I just let myself break my cross-legged posture and open my eyes and just look around and let my mind go where it wanted to. And so that brought up questions about right effort for me. And I was trying to figure out, am I being patient with myself in a wholesome way and allowing myself to be as I am right now in a wholesome way, or am I letting myself off the hook? Should I be trying harder Mm -hmm. to focus? So what do you think? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, what is your intuition? I don't know. A little bit of both. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for sure, we don't want to use our, what we'd call wrong effort. So effort that's coming out of fear or aversion or coming out of greed, like one, being embarrassed, like Anya's our preschool, our preschool, our preteen teacher. And, uh, you know, so I've got to, you know, I can't be moving my legs. <laughs> what will people think? And so we can have that attitude, but is that the reason? I mean, should that be the governing factor in whether we stretch out the leg, like what will people think? So that would be sort of wrong effort if that's sort of what's holding us in posture. The thing about effort is right effort is only knowable in the moment, in a way. It's like specific to that moment, like what is right effort? Um, so we can't, what we'd like to know is like, never move your body. I mean, and some people give instructions like that in meditation, like hold still. But, and it can be useful to have sort of those very simple, like hold still, sit up straight, focus on your breath. If there's thoughts, just come back to your breath. There, in like four sentences, I've given you instructions. And then, and then it's not complicated. And then when you're sitting, you don't have to be in this position like, should I move my body or should I sit still? Sometimes, you know, when the uh, pressure builds up and the mind is moving and sensations in the body are moving and it's feeling a little oppressive, like I can't handle this, this is too much. <clears throat> what I think is important to do is don't believe the first impulse that I have to uh, break the form, sitting still, um, you know, whatever you've sort of decided you were going to do at the beginning of the set. So to just see if I can change my attitude or change my way of relating or change my perspective with whatever it is that's happening. So one basic movement that all of us know and practice is taking a step back or as Joko Beck says, ABC, a bigger container. It's like we're bringing more space to what's going on. It's as if we're seeing the pain in the legs, the wild thoughts in the mind. It's as if we're seeing it in a bigger space so that there apparently is less pressure you know, because of the bigger space. So that's one. And surprisingly, another related strategy is just in the opposite direction. So it's like, I'm going to take a vacation. My mind's crazy. My body's crazy. I'm going to take my attention. I'm going to put it here. And I'm going to take a vacation from all of this other stuff. And this is especially useful if you've been working with a particular anchor for a while. Like, you know, for me, I often use the tip of my nostrils here. And so I can bring my attention here. Now, that other stuff is actually predominant. And in a different kind of practice, we really work with it. But I've learned, you know, in the last couple of moments that I just get seduced and reactive to the pain or seduced by the thoughts and reactive to the thoughts. So I'm going to recompose the mind with a more neutral experience, even though it's not predominant. You could also, sometimes it's nice to have a more expansive object, so using hearing or 
you can open your eyes and use the visual field as your primary object for a while. And just and sometimes people use both the visual and the auditory field, especially when you're feeling a lot of pressure. Then that way you can maintain the composure of the body. And you're not, in a sense, you're not pushing away the thoughts. You're not pushing away the pain in the body. Instead, you're just opening to the experience of seeing and hearing. And that's just a more direct way of bringing space, a sense of space. Like there's still pain in the legs. There's still a lot of thinking and worry or whatever. But it's happening in this context of this vast universe of experiencing, of content, you know, and it's just the pressure can diminish. And then the other, you know, mode is to explore how you might bring love, forgiveness, compassion. You can do it directly by using the phrases that we learn that first Friday of the month program that I mentioned a moment ago, or you can just do it more creatively or informally. How can the heart be relating with forgiveness or with patience or with love or with understanding. Like the phrase I often use, you know, it's not easy being a human being. Honey, it's like this now, you know, talking to yourself. It's not easy being a human being. It's not easy having a mind. It's not easy having a body. I care about this. And that's another way of bringing psychological space to what feels intense, overwhelming, pressured. Thanks, Anya. If you're interested in the preteen group for any of your children, you can talk to Anya after the program. Other questions or comments people have about practice? Yeah, say your name, please. My name is Jay. I was just wondering if there's any quick pointers for um, posture and position. Particularly if I sound like my lower and then my ankles and my feet get really uncomfortable. And then if, if there's not a question for now, if there's some, if I can look to any of the resources, I know there might be more specific yeah, no, that's a good question. And I'll say a few general things and then some specific things that might be useful. But generally, you know, we want the posture to support the what we're doing with the mind. And what we're doing with the mind is trying to be relaxed and alert. So the body and mind, as you probably know, they interrelate a lot and reflect each other quite a bit. So what can we do with the body to support alertness and relaxation in the mind? And you can experiment, you know, in terms of given the body you have now and the stiffness that you have and the limitations or the strength in the body that you have, what can you do with the body to support alertness and relaxation? So that's the general comment. And that's nice because then it really doesn't make it specific to sitting on the floor you know, or even sitting cross-legged. So keep that in mind. You could use a chair, or you could use one of the kneeling benches, which take a lot of the pressure. Well, it's a different kind of pressure on the knees, but it can be easier for people who have stiffness in the hips. Because with the cross-legged position, you know, we're not, it's really not about flexibility in the ankles or the knees. The, the knees aren't really meant to torque at all. The flexibility is really in the hips. A little bit in the ankles, but really mostly in the hips. So, you know, this is not the time necessarily to develop flexibility in the hips. Now, if you want to do yoga or stretches other times during the day, 
but in the sit, you should choose a sitting posture that your body, you feel, can really handle for the period of time you're going to be sitting. And uh, it helps to have the knees grounded so that you know, you're tilting your pelvis. In my direction, you're tilting it this way, right? In your direction, it would be tilting this way. So if you sit in the front half or even the front third of the cushion, that helps that tilt. That could be useful. Generally, the stiffer your hips, the tighter your hips, the higher you want your pelvis off the ground. But it creates other problems getting higher up. So, you know, it's ideally, actually, you'd have enough flexibility that you could be flat on the, on the floor because then you've got a nice wide base. A lot of the legs are touching, and it makes less pressure on the, on the few spots that are touching otherwise. Some of you know, but I'll just mention briefly, you know, you can have one ankle in front of the other. That's often for people the easiest, or ankles somewhat under the knees. And then, because the knees are going to be propped up, then feel free to experiment with a pillow or roll a little or bath towel, stick it there so that your knees aren't just dangling out in space, but have some support if they're not all the way on the ground. And then, you know, as flexibility comes, the quarter lotus is when you put uh, the top of the foot on the calf, the half lotus, the top of the foot on the thigh, and the full lotus when you can, I don't sit this way, but when you can put both feet on top of the thighs like that. And then, you know, the idea of this is you've created a really solid base, you're locked in, and psychologically you feel really grounded if you have the flexibility for it. But you know, a lot of very deep, beautiful teachers, practitioners use chairs. So there's nothing about the thing about sitting on the floor for some people they feel more grounded. Uh, and, and in a way there's just more the base is wider than when you're in a chair a lot of the weight is just on your two little sits bones. So uh, with the feet uh, in chairs, we often recommend people have it when they're meditating, have their feet flat instead of crossed. And sit in a chair where the thighs and the calves are at a right angle. And it just it helps support that feeling of stability. Yes? I just was given that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really pretty and it's exterior, but I have yet to crack it up and see what inside. And I was just kind of curious um, what its place is within Asana inside definition of how it's prescribed or how, mm-hmm. um, you know, if it's um, helpful early in study. Yeah. So he mentioned about the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses from the Buddhist teachings. So at some point, and probably uh, verses not from the Buddhist teachings, to, or not that they're incongruent, but not necessarily directly from the Buddha, but at some point after the time of the Buddha, someone went through the recorded teachings, maybe even when they were, it was still an oral tradition, it's not clear, and sort of pulled out some of the pithy verses and organized them into what's now called the Dhammapada. So it's, uh, you know, the the writing is more poetic. And maybe when you do crack it, you'll see that. And But a lot of the sort of more famous discourses the Buddha gave 
the verses that are embedded in those discourses have been pulled out. So you'll recognize some of them if you once you get familiar with the different talks the Buddha gave. When you read the Dhammapada, you'll start to get a sense, oh yeah, that came from this story or this talk he gave or this one's from over here. So it's in a way it's a more condensed version of the teachings and uh, and and written in verse as opposed to, you know, more non-verse form of language. But in terms of where you dig into the teachings, um, it, it really depends on your personality. You know, some people are, are attracted to the original sources. It's just part of the personality. They like history. They, um, they relate. Their spiritual practice is very much connected with this historic thing that happened in this lineage. Other people, not so much, you know, but it doesn't mean their practice isn't as deep. It just means that that historic lineage isn't as important to them. They wouldn't even necessarily consider themselves Buddhist. Of course, doesn't it isn't required. There's no reason to even think of yourself as a Buddhist. So it, that's part of it, too. Some people really find value in sort of that whole thread and going back to the source. And the Buddha, from my point of view, was a remarkable teaching teacher. I mean, the fact that somebody could articulate his mind in a particular way that people find totally appropriate, useful, 2,600 years later, is amazing. You know, that it is that uh, what he understood about the mind or about the heart was at a level below sort of cultural influences, a real universal understanding. So the fact that it got passed down in a relatively clean way over all these centuries, and then we read these talks, and we go, oh my god, I relate to that. You know, that's my experience, too. Mm-hmm. There's a couple really good, I'm not sure what translation you have, but Gil Fransdahl, who's a well-known Vipassana teacher in the States, um, out Mountain Valley, I forget. It's right next to Palo Alto in the San Francisco Bay Area. He has a center. And he's the, he has a nice translation of the Dhammapada. Other comments? Questions about your practice or aspects of the teachings that have been confusing or you'd like to have more information about? Okay, first you and then Naveed. Thank you. I have questions about sleepiness. Sleepiness? Maybe a little louder, Tammy. How long have you been sitting? Mm-hmm. Just in terms of our makeup, you know, we have different ways of dealing with the world being out of control. All of us do. And uh, like one strategy, some of us, all of us use some of the time, some of us use a lot of the time is when things are rough, we get hyped up. You know, we'll drink a lot of coffee or tea, 
we'll put on stimulating music, we'll read stimulating news or have stimulating conversations. And we get that being hyped up gives us a little space from what seems unworkable in life. And it becomes sort of a generic strategy that we can use in different ways to manage the intensity and the unpleasantness of life, the uncertainty of life. So that's like one whole range of responses to life. And then on the other side of the equation of energy is using dullness and all its different manifestations to manage our lives. And just being a little bit dull, a little bit depressed, a little bit withdrawn, a little bit uh, closed down as a way of managing the intensity and difficulty of life. And it's not like we make these conscious choices. You know, part of it is just genetic and cultural, like how we were brought up, where we were brought up. But then it becomes a pattern, you know, becomes part of the mind's habit to use as a way of managing life. Now, if, if dullness is one of the ways that we manage life, take care of life, like using it to soften or withdraw, control things, then what we need to do to bring things more in balance is to become more sophisticated, more clear about how energy arises in the mind and body. What are the gates or the sources of energy? You know how you can be dead to the world and then somebody calls you or uh, you think about something and all of a sudden you feel very alive, very real, ready to do things? So in, from you know the Buddhist point of view, I think energy isn't personal. It's really literally available. Um, like Thich Nhat Hanh says about you know the practice, you know, please help yourself. Love, <laughs> peace, joy, it is available. Please help yourself. And the question is, where do we find it? Now, one of the things you could do is just make a resolve every day, several times a day for the next month or two, <clears throat> like as soon as you get up and then several times sooner during the day. Make a resolve to notice moments in your life where a lot of energy is coming in to the mind and body. And then when you notice it, <clears throat> just be a student. It just try to clearly understand how that is, how it is that energy is coming into the mind and body. So we're understanding cause and effect. Just like you, the other resolve that would be good to make is uh, to get to become a very sophisticated, astute student of when the mind, mostly unconsciously or out of habit, makes the decision to cut itself off from life energy, like to basically shut down, withdraw in order to you know, for whatever reason. It could be just out of habit, or it could be specifically there's a lot of pain and the mind is using withdrawal as a way to protect itself from what seems dangerous. And then that would be really good to see too. Like, do I really need to withdraw? Do I really need to dull out here? Shut down here? What would happen if I didn't? Is it really dangerous to stay sensitive, to stay awake? And specifically in meditation practice, 
energy follows from interest. So, or even more ironically maybe, energy follows from making wholesome effort. So just the effort to take the attention and to connect with an object. So like we can be kind of with the breath. You know, we're sitting there and we're kind of with the breath. But the attention isn't actually connecting with the sensation, isn't actually knowing that touching sensation moment by moment by moment. It kind of knows breathing is happening, you know. It's in the vicinity of breathing, but it's not really vividly present. Just that effort to connect, to know the connection, and to sustain that is very energizing for the mind. And this is true on a gross level, too, like if we're feeling dead to the world and we somehow are able to make ourselves clean the closet or make the phone call, we get energized in the effort of doing something. We feel more alive. Just like if we just continue to sit on the couch, we feel more dead. It confirms, basically it confirms in the mind, ah, it's too much. And so that you can experiment with that too, like in wholesome ways in the practice. What can I ask the mind to do, not out of greed, not out of aversion, that might affect the energy level in the mind? What could it, for example, what could I ask the mind to connect with? Honey, you know, be interested. See if you can really connect with the very first moment the breath comes in. Can you be aware of the middle of the in-breath? Can you be aware of the very end of the in-breath? Can you be aware of that gap between the end of the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath? So just inviting the attention to connect with these different points, if you're using your breath as your main meditation object, can enliven the mind. Thanks, Tammy. Did you have a thought? Books that I I want to read, <laughs> you know, and I and generally I stay with uh, the Theravadan or Vipassana tradition, even though there are a lot of great Buddhist teachers teaching in ways that are very accessible and useful from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and from the Zen tradition. But because this is a Vipassana center, I generally use those books. And people, I feel, do a, a good job, um, you know, have a real accessible voice in how they talk about their own practice and the tradition. Yeah. But if you have suggestions, I'd love to hear them. I used, I didn't used to use books, but uh, it occurred to me, I'm, in one way, it's helpful for me because now I always know what I'm going to talk about because I can look at the chapter and, and it, and it, you know, it, it creates a window to under, to remember my own practice and also to hear somebody else talk about their practice. But it also creates a resource for other people. You know, it is useful to hear different people talk about the practice. So people who have the time and interest can go ahead and get a copy of The Wise Heart, now in paperback, I believe by Jack Kornfield and follow along. And, and also I find the books that I've used recently, and I've just used a couple, are, are nice resources to have. So if there's a particular thing coming up in your practice, the way they're structured, you can look through the index or the table of contents. You get a little 
information that might speak right to where you're at in your practice that can be useful. And it's nice to have those resources. It's like being able to visit a teacher, right? And which isn't, you know, sometimes it's not so easy to do. But our books, especially a few of our books, we can have that relationship with them. And I don't, I don't think this should be dismissed. I think it can be really powerful to have a few manuals that you go back to over and over again. Good friends, good spiritual friends. Other thoughts about practice that come to mind? Questions? Yeah. I've got another one. This is just kind of a small addition to the question of what she about sleepiness. Mm -hmm. And this comes from a different line of that teacher, Shambhala, across town. Uh, but it's just a little tiny thing that really, really helpful for me because I have a tendency when I do get sleepy, usually I have to deal with the hyperactive mind more. But when I do, I'll try to like straighten up, tighten up, do all this stuff. And someone pointed that out just based on the response I had about it. And she said, Try inserting, dear one, you're sleeping now. Instead of just saying, sharpen up or wake up, yeah. Um, yeah. just putting that in there. Or the same thing when fear comes up, dear one, I'm here for you. So that little bit always really wakes me up and gets me right in with my breath. And it's just kind of being gentle around coming back into the present moment. And I think a lot of people would naturally do what I did, which is, you're dull now. so. Do something forceful. Yeah, and what is that? Like when um, we have that more aggressive response, the fact of the matter is the moment we realize we're dull, that's a moment of mindfulness. It should be appreciated. And I think the phrases you use are just ways of expressing that appropriate uh, appreciation that, oh, I'm aware the mind is clear that there's dullness, it's like this, or that there's fear and it's like this. We don't want to dismiss that. That's actually, it's useful to wake up. We, When we are dull, we want to know we're dull. You know, when we are fearful, we want to be aware of that. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a bigger point about this idea of returning to the primary object. There's a whole art about returning. And the first part of that art is to acknowledge how it is. We don't need to rush back to the breath or whatever meditation object you're working with. Just acknowledge, take the time to acknowledge what's happening. If it's dullness, acknowledge that. Thanks, nice point. Other challenges in practice for you? Yeah, Courtney. I'm wondering if you could, she said, again, as a follow-up to the question about sleepiness, could you uh, develop the, the other side of how to deal with sort of uh, repetitive, obsessive, aggressive thoughts? But because at times I'll emerge from meditation more agitated than when I started. Yeah. <laughs> and because it's almost as if it was an opportunity for me to just go right in and, and become obsessed. That's and right. Nothing to distract us from our obsession. <laughs> People are laughing because we all know this experience where the form is actually counterproductive. The fact that we've put aside the 30 minutes or the 45 minutes, no distractions. But, but what we, when we enter that space and we sit down and we're in that form, the mind, the habit mind, takes over 
and it uses it to plan obsessively or to worry obsessively or to complain obsessively. And we feel the effects. So at the end, we actually do, we're harmed by that activity. So we don't want to do that, you know, because it's not good for us to, it's not good to do it through the daily life, but at least in daily life, our obsession is getting distracted, you know, because we actually have to function. And uh, it breaks, it can break the cycle. So the first thing, of course, is uh, out of compassion and wisdom to recognize it's unwholesome. You know that, and even before we sit, we know that that's true because we've already done it in the past. So we know from our direct experience that when the mind is concentrated in this way, this would be unwholesome concentration based on fear, or greed, aversion. You know, concentrated on obsessive thinking, worrying, planning, complaining that it's harmful. So we want to be really clear, and it creates a, a kind of inspiration or force in the mind, like not to fall in. Just like if we were walking along a mountain path, you know, we know if I fall, it's going to be bad news. You know, there's no ambulance around, there's, and, it, and it sort of makes us vigilant in a way. And we want that same wholesome fear, wholesome concern. Honey, this is, it would not be good. You don't want to do this. You know, that voice of wisdom and compassion alive. And then it's just a question of, well, what, what can we do to avoid it? Well, surprisingly, not forgetting that, not forgetting your experience that that's harmful is one of the most powerful things. I mean, a lot of us, don't do bad things in the world because we've got that moral force operating that says, you know, you, you may not like somebody, but you don't hit them. You may really want somebody's iPhone, but you don't take it. You know, we, that, but you think, now, when you ask yourself, well, why don't you take somebody's iPhone or why don't you hit the people you don't like or that bother you? <laughs> but it is, it's exactly this force that's alive, but it's so commonplace in our minds, we don't see it. But we can have the same thing about worrying or complaining or gossiping or all these other patterns that are so destructive. But the thing is, we have a mixed view of them. Our obsessive planning on some level, we believe it's functional, that it's going to go somewhere, that it's useful. So part of it is when we do get sucked in, sure, it would be nice not to get sucked in, but take advantage of being sucked in to learn a little bit more deeply that it takes you to hell. You know, so we, if we're going to get burnt, we want to know we're getting burned because it will be less likely we'll let ourselves fall into that hole the next time and then the next time and the next time. So those, it's really nice to, you know, okay, we, we start the practice. We know this tendency of the mind. We can already feel that draw into that content. And we remind ourselves, you know, my experience, honey, has told me, shown me, that if I spend this half an hour or this 45 minutes thinking about this, I'm going to be all wrapped up, body, mind, tight, entangled when I'm done. What's the point? So you're really clear about that. And then try to maintain that force of wisdom, that understanding. So when the content arises, it's like a seduction, you know? 
and are you going to take the bait or not? And it's like, it's so interesting when we see something seductive, it's truly seductive. I mean, obviously, if it wasn't, if it wasn't seductive, this would be so easy. But it's not easy because the voice, the content is compelling. So we want to see the juiciness of the content. It's almost like a promise. If you think about me, if you take a hold of me and think about me, get lost with me, we'll get something. So we want to notice the seduction and, and almost have a, a wisdom gaze that sees right through it, that understands the veneer is just the veneer. You know, and below it is all the suffering. And we can see that. We can see the suffering if we're not confused by the veneer. So whatever the particular content is, it's like we see through that, and right behind it is the force of greed or aversion. And it already, even before we've gotten entangled, it already has the flavor of tightness, of dukkha, of suffering. But we have to see through it. Like, uh, you know, my particular obsession these days has been about, some of you have heard me talk about it, about getting a, a place on Lake Superior or some big body of water, quiet place, nice trees with some sunlight, <laughs> low property tax, <laughs> only cool neighbors, you know, and on and on. I have it all fleshed out. And uh, so for me, you know, the, the mind will go there, especially when I'm hurting feeling overwhelmed by my to-do list and this and that, then when we're hurting, the mind seeks something that promises to alleviate the pain, you know, so that content will come in. And then, you know, it always comes in with a really nice picture, you know, how the simple picture, you know, how nice it would be right now to be sitting on the shore of Lake Superior with nobody around. Well, I don't know about right now, but inside with a fire, you know, looking out a nice window at Lake Superior or something like that would be really nice right now. And then we can look through that veneer and we can see all of the greed, all of the aversion, all of the worry, all of that, all of what that includes. So we're seeing the whole package. And it, it like, so the water for that fire of desire is right there. It's all right there. It, would, it will extinguish itself. The only thing that's missing is we're not seeing the whole picture. So if that's, that's what you want to do, train yourself that whatever content might arise in our experience, that the first <clears throat> wave of, of the content, we're not seduced by it. We're not seduced by the emotional feeling that goes with the content. We're not seduced by the images or the words associated, but there's a kind of wisdom stillness that uh, lets it play out for many moments and basically is able to see through, to see the whole package. And basically we're, we're seeing, do I want to go down this road? <clears throat> is this the kind of heart that I want to cultivate? When I'm dying, well, spending a half an hour thinking, worrying about this, will this be of value when I'm dying or when I'm with somebody who's dying and I want to be a real support for them? Will I have, will this give me anything of value? 
So we're cutting through that veneer, that promise of some con- some kind of something juicy that we imagine we'll get, and seeing the whole package. So there's some thoughts. There are many, many ways to deal with um, difficult thinking. The Buddha has this great talk where he lists five different strategies. You know, the last one, the one, the last resort one is to, um, just as a woman or a man would, you know, crush another person by grabbing them and throwing them down and pinning them down, just so you take mind and you crush mind with mind. So uh, the last resort is to really tune into that fear of getting lost one more time, saying, I am not going to do this, you know, rallying that result, I am not going to do this. But of course, that's a very rough strategy, you know. But anything is better than sitting for 30 minutes or 45 minutes in unproductive ways. Because not only is it entangling the mind, but it's creating uh, a groove that makes it easier to do it in the future. So we're going in the wrong direction. So it's good to be to try anything, basically, to see if it will work. Yeah, it has to be quick, though, Arlene. I totally agree. But when you see the veneer and you look through it, you'll get all that information that you need to get from it. Yeah. So, But that's another way of talking about that I think is really important. Nothing happens by accident. So if something's arising, there is, there is some information. It isn't so much what the veneer says, but there is something there that's relevant to learn from that experience. Usually I can flush it up by just stopping and saying, is there something here you're trying to get me? So, for example, with uh, you know my wanting, you know, obsessing about having a place in the country. When I do that, when I look at it in that way, what I see is, you know, maybe a flavor of being unhappy, you know, or being uh, not liking having a lot to do, and then and then it gives me a chance to, oh, well, that's important information. Is there a way to like have less to do? or a way to look at all that I have to do and with different eyes that sort of alleviates that pressure, that the need to have another headache, basically. <laughs> it reduces that sense of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Arlene. That's great. And let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words.